Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is a dove of peace. Today that we are recording is January 1st, and it is my fondest wish for 2024 that there be peace this year. And particularly because we're discussing Israel and Gaza and Hamas and Today, I don't think there's anything more relevant than a wish for peace. Absolutely. You know, we made it through 2023, and we hope all of you had a great holiday season and new year with your loved ones. Um, and on that note, let's maybe start off just by talking about um, the new year and what you did over the holiday season. I know we took a bit of a break. So um, how was how was your break and what did you do? Well, I think we should start with yours because you had a great trip with your parents. Yes, I um, went uh, to a few cities, actually, with my parents. We were gone for a week, and we went. We started in Vancouver, which was um, amazing. We stayed in Richmond, and let me tell you, the hot, the, not the hot pot, the dim sum in Richmond was fantastic. Oh. It was so good. I mean, I, I thought the dim sum in Chicago was good. No, dim sum in Richmond, they have it basically on every single corner of the street. It's so densely populated with dim sum. It's really wonderful. And they roll the cart and it's just like your favorite dim sum. So we started off there. We spent a few days in Vancouver, went to Victoria, which is really gorgeous and pretty town. Um, and then we drove to um, Forks, Washington, which is a very small town, a very, very small town. Um, also where Twilight was filmed. Not that I watched Twilight, but um, if any of you watch Twilight, that's apparently where Twilight was filmed. And then we ended the trip in um, Seattle and Seattle was great. I, I really loved it. Um, got to see the um, Pike's Market for the first time. And, and that was uh, really, really lovely. And I saw them throwing fish around the market. And it was just so much joy and happiness. And um, I am now back in Chicago for a week before I head back um, to UCLA for my final quarter, which is so crazy to imagine. You know, we started this podcast before I even started at UCLA. So um, it, it, time flies. Yeah, we started this when you had you had graduated high school, yes. but it was the summer before you started college during COVID from your bedroom in Buffalo <laughs> Grove, as opposed to from a dorm room at UCLA. Yes, and it's it's hard to. In fact, we should at some point maybe make a list of all the podcasts we've done of all the fabulous guests who have joined us, because it's been an interesting multiple number of years. It's fantastic. And yeah. I, 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 you also, I, I know from talking to you during your trip that you were at Butchart's Gardens, which yes, I yes. think is one of the most beautiful. I was there in the summer where it was beautiful, but you saw the light show there. I did see the light show and it was a great light show. We went at night and um, it's sort of like if any of you live in, you know, live in Chicago, there was a botanical garden light show and it's just every single part of the garden was lit up in lights and there was, and the lights turned different colors and it, it, was, just, it was just really amazing. And I never knew you could do that with just lights. And it was awesome to see how many lights just lit up the um, garden. It really felt like the holiday season. It was it was awesome. And there was also, by the way, I forgot to tell you this, but I was at um, a bookstore uh, in Victoria called Monroe's Bookstore, which is a really just cute little bookstore, independent local shop. And I saw two things. I saw one, your book, uh-huh. <laughs> Jill. Two, I, it was really interesting to, to notice this. They had an entire um, rack of the, of, of the bookstore dedicated to American democracy. And one of the 
books that was uh facing the front was um, Heather Cox Richardson's book, um, Democracy Awakening. And they had other books um, by like Timothy, Timothy Snyder. They had Ruth Ben-Ghiat's book. But it was all about kind of American democracy, Trump, uh, the cult that he's cultivated. And it was just sort of like in Canada, like, you know, they care about our democracy. They really do. And and they have books and they remind their people and people read them. And it's a very popular. It was, there were a lot of people surrounding that that rack of the of the bookstore. And I just thought, you know, Like the world is really, I think, watching us and and sort of what Trump did to us and what's going to happen in 2024. So to me, it was sort of a reminder that, you know, we still have a democracy to fight for and a place like Canada even is watching us and caring about Well, us. I'm always amazed when I do Canadian television or radio, Oh, yeah. how knowledgeable the hosts are about American politics. And I would also say that that bookstore's rack is now going to have Barbara McQuaid's book. Yes. It is not, it'll be out next month. And I definitely guarantee her book will be a bestseller in Canada and in America talking Absolutely. about disinformation, misinformation, and what we need to do about it. Um, and, and I also have to comment that I can't believe there's better dim sum than in Chicago, either on the north side Chinatown or the south side Chinatown. But I'm certainly game to try it. And it, you know, going to the subject that we'll be discussing today with Dean Obadila is Jews always celebrate Christmas by having either dim sum or some other yes. Chinese dinner. Yes. So it's funny that you did that. This year. Alana Kagan had that one moment during her confirmation hearing when a, yes. when a senator asked her, you know, what will you be doing for the holidays? And she's like, you know, I'll be eating Chinese or take out Chinese food. Just, she said, just like most Jews, I'll be just having like some. Yes, exactly. Yes. And it's true. Uh, it, his question actually was, what were you doing last Christmas? Last, oh, yes. It had to do with, and I don't remember the predicate of the question now. Um, well, did you have dim sum? Please let us know. Yeah. Did you have dim sum this holiday season at all? I didn't we were supposed to but um somehow we didn't get out for dim sum this year i can't remember what we did but i entertained two dear friends for new year's eve we had duck which was duck a la orange so it was not yeah, it was definitely french um and we had a wonderful time with them it was a great holiday but i have been pondering 2024 and i am welcoming, you know, sort of all of our listeners and viewers to 2024 and looking forward to our all working together to save our democracy. Uh, as Victor was just saying, Canada's worried about our democracy and yeah. we should too. You know, we, we talked in the podcast, we mentioned that you don't really do New Year's resolutions, but do you have any fun New Year's resolutions or things you're looking forward to in 2024? No, I mean, I'm looking forward to saving democracy. That is my resolution. Um, and to doing some more traveling. I'm looking forward to that. And to maybe some more sisters-in-law live shows, because that was so much fun when we did. And one of them was in Portland, Oregon, which is sort of in the area you were, but not quite. Um, and New York and D.C. Uh, but we have some that we're trying to plan, maybe even including Chicago. Um, so, and maybe Ann Arbor where Barb is, yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll, LA. we'll and maybe, maybe LA and San Francisco, but that's really a long trip. Um, it but is. anyway, yeah. Um, I, I'm looking forward to it. Our English friends uh, whose book I held up last week, um, uh, which just came out and is available on Amazon. 
uh, are going to Marrakesh. And so we're thinking maybe we should join them, but we were more thinking about Cuba, um, mm. where we've been and loved, but we want to get out of Havana and see more and maybe study marine biology because they have done so good at ecological protection of their reefs. And um, so that would be something of interest to us. My husband at one point wanted to be a marine biologist, um, turned out an antique dealer, but he still is fascinated by marine biology. Well, speaking of antiques, I just want to um, tell our audience and be the first if you have not seen it yet. Um, because of Jill's antiques, an amazing mantle. She won a uh, award from Room Raider, um, and she won the top mantle of the year. So um, congratulations to Jill. And if you see a difference in her backdrop, it's because why? Well, actually, the real reason why it's different today is because in order to entertain my guests last night, I had to remove all my equipment that was blocking entry to the main part of the living room. And this is where it is. And so I had to do it here. But I also am going to go for top room of the year. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to show different parts of my room. Today, you can see the backdrop is a tiger painting that my husband did on a screen, but also some wonderful funeral yeah. um, porcelains. There's a house. Um, there's also some Dalmatians that he sculpted. I don't know how visible they will be, but in addition, there's a lot of funeral um, pottery. So that's, and let's see, there's also some uh, tiles behind me, some um, Chinese tiles. And um, so I'm going to show different parts of my room to see if I can do better next year. Yes. yes. Raider, I hope you're listening. Yes, we will send it to Room Raider to make sure that you get rated. Um, but it's to me at least, it looks like a ten out of ten. I don't know what you could do to make that lower, but um, we we hope that Jill wins next year as well. Um, and let's get into the episode. Um, and and also let us know what you did over the holiday season as well. Um, you can write to us via Jill's website or through Twitter or X or Threads. Uh, we love to read about what you're doing and, and what you hope for 2024, because there's a lot that's going to happen. And uh, I don't think it's going to be any less crazy than 2023 was. Um, so with that, let's get into the episode. Um, and there is no better message for the start of the new year than to prioritize love over hate, hence Jill's pins, um, to understand that hate, no matter what it looks like whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, they have no place in America and they must be called out and condemned. And today we have someone who has pushed that message against the backdrop of the brutal Israel-Hamas war. And that person is Dean Obadella. Dean, who is Palestinian, recently wrote a piece with Max Brooks, who is Jewish, um, that I found extremely thought-provoking and compelling. And we had hoped to have both Dean and Max on the show, but because of scheduling, we couldn't get both. And we're hoping to get Dean back again with Max or without, but to also get Max on the show because they have different perspectives um, on the Israel-Gaza war. And we, we look forward to having our conversation with Dean today because he has a legal background. We're, we'll maybe try to get to, if we have time, beyond the brutal Hamas attack, maybe some of the legal issues that are facing. But 
There's so much to talk about with what's going on. And because he's both a lawyer and very funny, we know you're going to enjoy our discussion. So Dean, thank you for joining us today. It is a great privilege to have you and we're very happy to welcome you and happy new year. It's great to be here. I usually have you two as guests on my show where I ask the question. So now you ask the questions and I'm going to be as evasive as possible. So go do your best. I'm not going to answer anything straightforward. Just yes, no answers. That's it the whole time. We know you're just joking. We know that. I know, I know. We're excited to have you on, and 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 it's great to see you in this uh, new year of 2024. Um, we want to start with a piece that you wrote with Max Brooks, which is mm-hmm. extremely powerful. And there's one section I just want to read um, for you that you two wrote. You two wrote, um, quote, many of us might not agree on what we want U.S. policy to be in the Middle East, but what we must agree on is that there is no place for hate when it comes to this emotionally charged conflict. Can you talk about how you two came together to write this piece and why you think there's so much hate going on right now around this issue? Sure. I mean, Max, I've known for a long time. He was a writer at Saturday Night Live, and I worked on the production staff at Saturday Night Live in late 1990s to mid-2000s. He was there for a couple of seasons. We became friends, and we pitched a TV series at Comedy Central. We sold a pilot and a streaming show called The Watch List. It was the first time Middle Eastern American comedians were yeah. on any network streaming or anything. It was before anything, before Rami's show, before any of the shows now. It was back in like 2008, 2009. And we've been friends ever since. And you know, we talk here and there. He lives in LA. And his wife's a great playwright when I see her here. And he was talking to me about making a video because she had come out for a play that had opened a few weeks, about a few weeks before that we would be made the video. You want to make a short video and write a little short something about the idea that, hey, he's Jewish, uh, I'm Palestinian heritage, I'm Muslim, and that there's no place for hate or bigotry. And I said, sure. I mean, he's my buddy. I like to do this. I, I've done a comedy show with my friend Scott Blakeman for 15, 16 years called Stand Up for Peace. He's Jewish. I'm Muslim. We do it at colleges all the time. So mm-hmm. interfaith work and bringing people together is all, something that's really motivated me for a long time. And I, I'm the first to say there are, Whenever there's times of conflict in the Middle East, people get very emotional. And I understand it. I also give people some of the grace that they might not give me when it comes to people lashing out. But where there's no, and that could be over policy, and that's fine. We could debate policy all day, but there's no place for anti-Muslim or anti-Semitic hate. And in reality, the people who hate Jews tend to hate Muslims and vice versa. You know, we're in this together against the right-wing bigots. And it's been disheartening to see the anger and the the, str- the strain that's put on some relationships yeah. during this time. Although I think that's calming, but still, I think there's going to be an impact. It'll take a little while to heal. It's it's was a great piece. I really Thanks. enjoyed reading it. And of course, I always love talking to you. Um, and it, it does appear, though, that there is a struggle. And, and you know, we had planned to have Max with you, but because of timing, we couldn't work it out. I hope that he will be able to join us on another occasion. But I'm going to have to be the stand-in Jew for today. So okay. um, that will be my role. And what I'm struggling with and what many people, not, not just Jews, but Americans, are trying to separate the Jewish people from the Israeli government and particularly Netanyahu, who I would say is probably at an all-time low in public perception, both within Israel and around the world. Um, 
And probably the same is true for Palestinians being separated from the brutality of Hamas, both in terms of how they run Gaza mm -hmm. and in terms of the attack on October 7th. So why do you think we aren't able to separate Israel and Netanyahu and whatever he's doing? How does that lead to anti-Semitism? And maybe the same is true in terms of the Islamophobia that has developed and mm -hmm. separating that from Hamas, which is very different than the Gazan citizens. Right. It's a very difficult question. I mean, there are, look, we, we have to accept there are certain people who are bigots. There are certain people who hate Jews. Certain people who hate Muslims. Certain people who hate Asian Americans or hate Blacks, LGBTQ. All right, so you've got that bucket of people. There were others who are not really bigots, but they might be saying hateful things. So they might, in a way, do a juxtaposition or they view the policies of Israel as representing Judaism uh, is fundamentally wrong, right? But I think part of the struggle, I'm going to be brutally honest, you have some organizations in America that conflate Israeli policy with Judaism. And like, well, if you criticize Israel, you're being anti-Semitic. That's actually making a, a problem, I think. Like, I would never say, if you criticize Saudi Arabia, it doesn't matter to me that it's where Mecca is and Medina and the most holy sites in Islam and people go on pilgrimage. You can criticize their policy every single day of the week. I have. It doesn't make you anti-Muslim. I would never say, oh, you're an anti-Muslim bigot because you're criticizing Saudi Arabia. And no Muslim American organization would say that either. So I think that's where you've got this weird thing. You know, you've got some people who just don't get it, though. I mean, you've got, some, like, um, this is kind of a nuanced thing. You'll see some groups go, well, if you criticize Israel and try to delegitimize them, it's anti-Semitism. You're unfortunately conflating Israeli policy then with Judaism. They're not the same at all. These are government actions by people who are elected right now, a far-right coalition, the most far-right coalition in the history of Israel, according to all the experts. I, I think that's part of the struggle. And I think it's, you know, people like yourself, Jill, other people, my, my friend Max. I mean, to me, you don't have to define Judaism. To me, I have so many friends who are Jewish. And to me, Judaism is defined by their compassion and their care and their fighting for justice. That's, to me, what being Jewish is in America. I can't speak for the rest of the world, but that's what I know Judaism is because of all my friends who are like that. They're the greatest progressive activists. They stand up for the, my community. They stand up for other communities all the time. That is what, to me, being Jewish is. The positive Israel, to me, never played a role in that. So it upsets me when people think that, oh, look what Israel is doing, and this is something to do with the Jews. No, they happen to be Jewish, but I can assure you Netanyahu is not going to the Old Testament before he's making a decision about how what bombs to drop. He is doing things as a leader catering to a right-wing coalition that elected him, the same way Donald Trump only catered to the right-wing people in America who supported him. It's the same idea we're dealing with. So that's a struggle. I, I think, you know, you know, Chuck Schumer recently said something, and I'm like, well, I know why he was saying, and I get it. He was saying he was interviewing with Politico, and he was upset. People were saying, well, in Israel, they're oppressing the Palestinians. He goes, Jews were not oppressors. And I'm like, it, no one's saying Jews are oppressors. Like, why would you even say that? You're saying Israeli policy in the West Bank is occupation. Let's say people could debate that if it is or not, but that's what we're saying. We're not saying Jews are oppressing. And, and Schumer saying that because he was reeling from pain because people were saying things about Israel and Jews. And I think it, it takes a nuance. It, it's a topic that demands nuance in a time where emotion is fueling us, and it's really hard. So it's also a time when not just nuance, but semantics matter. Right. And you just used the word occupation. 
occupation in Gaza, there is no occupation in Gaza. So I get upset when I hear that. In the West Bank, yeah, there's occupation. You that's can say comments. it there, but that's not even, it's not Hamas and it's not Gaza where we're at war now. And it's separating the brutality of Hamas and the right of Israel to exist. And also words like from the river to the sea, which people take as anti-Semitic. And especially in connection with saying, you know, calling for genocide in some other ways. And, you know, you can debate whether that is calling for genocide or not, but I think we have to really define the words um, and understand the mission of Hamas, which is to eliminate the state of Israel and all the Jews around the world, I think, not just in Israel, and the right of Israel to defend itself, right. but not to violate the rules of war. And, you know, you can't say to people, move south in Gaza and then bomb the south and not think that the world is going to rise in criticism. So I think we have to be careful in the words we use and, um, you know, that- but You're a lawyer, that's why. You're yeah. a lawyer and you look at this very legally where, where yeah. emotion transcends and eclipses. That, yes, the word occupation, there's a definition on international law. I think the Fort Geneva Protocol deals with powers that are occupying, can they build settlements or not? And that's when people say, Israeli settlements are a violation of international law, they point to that, right? So, and that's in the West Bank. Yeah. The, but it's right, you've got a situation where words matter, but we're in a situation where words don't matter because all emotion. You know what crushes me is this idea, I saw New York Times poll, who do you sympathize more with, Israelis or Palestinians? That's a horrible question. How about humanity? How about, it's not the New York Giants versus you know the Dallas Cowboys. I hate the Cowboys, right? I don't dehumanize them, but I hate them. But if you're going to make this a sporting match and you root for one or the other, that's not, we should root for humanity. We should, you, it's, it's something I've talked about for decades in my work that, you know, if a Palestinian child, an Israeli child is killed by war, by an act of war, intentionally or just recklessly, it's wrong. And we should denounce it and we shouldn't lose our humanity. It's too easy to become so tribal in an area where tribalism dominates a great deal. It's so easy to get into that. And and that's what breaks my heart, that people have lost. We should mourn the loss on October 7th of the Israelis who are just living their lives, a horrific terrorist attack by Hamas. That's period, right? That's one conversation. Another conversation is since October 7th now, and the military reaction, which at first seemed to be targeting militants, and then exploded into a The Wall Street Journal had a thing yesterday with images I'm unbelievable about what's going on in Gaza. And you look at it, you can't believe it. You just, it's like images from World War II and the death, just the destruction and the loss of lives. And you're like, this, they're both at this point wrong. And I think you can do both and be nuanced, but it's a difficult time. I mean, it's a little bit calmer now than it was say a month ago. And I hope we can find some common ground on humanity then we can talk about policy later. I mean, speaking of a place where I don't think nuance is happening at all, which is on social media and, and particularly young people getting their social media content or their news information from a place like TikTok where these short form clips go viral and there's not really much context or much nuance um, in those videos. I'm wondering just how you think social media is changing the way that young people in particular are thinking about this issue. And 
how big of a challenge do you think that will be for President Biden next year and, and this issue sort of writ large? Well, it's interesting. I just interviewed Aidan Cohen-Murphy, the founder of Gen Z for Change on my show. He told me, and he's not speaking for all young people, but that young people don't watch cable news at all. They don't know us, Jill. Can you believe that? Young people don't <laughs> yeah. know the great Jill Weinberg. Some do, but you know they don't know Glenn Kirshner. They don't know all the people that we know and like a great deal because they're literally disconnecting. In fact, there was just an article in one of the trade publications on TV about the number of Americans who have cable, who have cable, where cable news is on it, has dropped from about 80 million, which is about five, six years ago, down to about 60 million. And it keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. So social media is going to fill that gap for good or for bad, right? And I think younger people, from what I learned from Aiden and others, it's peer to peer. They see someone around their age talking about their life. It's not political. Like, this is my life. This is what's happening here. And you can learn more about it and the algorithm will feed you more stuff. And it's up to you to go do more research online. It's not like they're just, but my sense is young people, and you're one of them, Victor, you're not just watching a TikTok video and making a decision. Like people are then reading articles. Some might be reading books. Some might be just watching more videos on Instagram, learning from their peers. I think in the Middle East, what's changed for me 20 years ago when I was younger is that uh, there were never people speaking out for Palestinian humanity before. Like, this is so shocking for me. Like, this is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. Um, I didn't expect it. Usually nobody cares about us. Uh, the younger generation speaking out, and, uh, and I think it emboldened other progressives to go like, hey, you can denounce Hamas and also denounce Netanyahu and what he's doing. Before it was like, uh, okay, we're going to just be silent or not engage at all. Um, it's changed, and I hope it changes policy. The grassroots, it's not... You people could define if they want to say it's anti-Israel or not. That's how you can define those terms differently. Is it more sympathetic to the humanity of Palestinians than it's ever been? Yeah, and maybe from this humanization of Palestinians who have been dehumanized, we can then push leaders to a just policy that leads to a long-term peace, so that neither Israeli mothers or Palestinian mothers have to worry about their kids leaving and not coming home that day because they're killed by a militant or a military or a missile strike. So. Because the double standards in the Middle East are unlike other places. Double standards in the Middle East lead to dehumanization. When you only care about one group and not the other, you don't apply the same standards, you've dehumanized. And in general, it's been the Palestinians. And, and my family in the West Bank, who settlers took my grandmother's land decades ago. Years ago, no one even cared. Now, all of a sudden, people start, they're like, oh, that's terrible. Talk to me more about that. I'm like, you really want to hear about the Middle East? This is so unlike the landscape I grew up in. And I'm hoping it leads to a change in policy for Biden. You know, getting that, I think it's going to be hard. Bluntly, let me be really blunt, both of you. It'll be really hard for me if the election war in the next few weeks for me to go to people in the Muslim and Arab American community and say, vote for Joe Biden. Say, vote it. Don't support Trump. Easy, easy sell. Vote for Biden after what they're seeing. Hard. Between now and November, a lot can change. President Biden can show leadership in, in pushing for a just settlement, humanitarian aid, and more. It won't erase it, but then at least I can make a good faith argument. People in my community, it's very, it's very painful. Like over the weekend, President Biden went around Congress again and gave military aid to Netanyahu. Even today, Tim Kaine, Peter Welch, the senator from Vermont, uh, and Van Holland criticized it openly. You usually don't see Democrats like that saying, stop going around Congress. We're seeing what's going on there. And that's the kind of thing where it takes your breath away. I'm like, how could you do that, Biden, after what you've seen? to go around Congress and give $100 million more in mortar and aid without 
making a statement what it's needed for, or I'm going to have limits on it. It's very, even, it's hard, like, I'm going to defeat Joe, Donald Trump no matter what. And Biden's the person, and I'm going to support President Biden 100%, as much as it hurts my heart in certain ways, but I'm not just in this for my issue. As a liberal, a progressive, I'm concerned for so many communities, and Trump right. hurts all of us. So yeah. it can't just be about my issue. So I, we want to go into some policy discussion too, but sure. um, listening to you just now made me want to ask, I hope it's going to be okay. If you don't want to answer, you don't have to. Um, but I'd be very interested in knowing more about your Palestinian background. And, sure. you know, your parents, I take it from what you just said, live somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, tell no, me. No, not my parents. No, my cousins. My dad was born in the 1920s in what was then uh, Palestine, but it was a, a province of the Ottoman Empire, right? So, and, it, and I guess it was actually technically the British mandate then. Right. Because it was the Ottoman Empire, it was a province called Palestine. My family was there for five or six generations before. They'd come from other areas, but that's where they settled five or six generations before. So he's born in the 20s in what was the British mandate of Palestine. He comes to the U.S. because he works as a cook in the U.S. Embassy in Jordan and got to know U.S. diplomats. And they sponsored him to come to America, this special place called New Jersey. And so he came <laughs> to New Jersey and he was fine. He worked in New Jersey and then he met my what mom. What year was that? What year? 1957. It was after the 56th so after, after, yeah. yeah. After the creation of Israel. So, and they're in the West Bank. So my family's in the West Bank, a small town called Batir outside of Bethlehem. So mm-hmm. after the creation of the state of Israel, that falls under the sovereignty of Jordan. At least Jordan was controlling the West Bank. So we had the freedom to travel to Amman, Jordan, work in the U.S. Embassy there, get to know the people. They sponsor him. He comes to Jersey, meets my Sicilian mother, who was the child of immigrants herself, her first language was Italian, in Jersey, and they get married. And hence me, half Sicilian, half Palestinian. And I can assure you the Palestinian side tempers my Sicilian side. My <laughs> Sicilian side, my temper on that side off the charts, but my Palestinian side calms me. And I'm not even kidding. People think I'm kidding. People don't get it. You see Palestinians on TV, the militants. Palestinians are in general are, are quiet, deferential people. They don't want problems. They live their life. They love education is a big part of it. They like their family, um, food, that kind of stuff. And they are quiet. Sicilians in your face, bigger than life, and they're proud of that, right? So they met. But my family, my father was the first one here from his family, brought his brothers over from the West Bank to the U.S. little by little. And now I have no uncles living there any longer there, but I have a lot of cousins, a lot of cousins who go back and forth. A lot of my cousins who are, came here for school, became U.S. citizens, went back when the Palestinian Authority was created in 1993 and there was a promise of a homeland. They went home. They wanted to go home and be part of this new country. So my family is still in the West Bank in Ramallah and in Batir outside of Bethlehem. That's where they are. I have none in Gaza. I have numerous friends here who are Palestinian Americans who have lost countless family members in Gaza. Like every day I see postings and it's the most heartbreaking thing. I feel it because I know them. I don't know their family, but I know them. They're my friends. They're born here. Some are comedians and stuff. And so you see that part of it. So while I have no family in Gaza, the pain is real because of my friends. Like if I knew no one there, it would still be painful, but it's much more real and immediate. It's painful it's to me. And I, I know no one there, although... I do in Israel, and because, like everybody, you know someone who died on October 7th. Um, right. And I should mention, my fiance is Israeli, but she's, she's Palestinian. She's born in Haifa, raised in Haifa. 
She was on Sesame Street in Israel. She played the Arab character. She oh, speaks wow. Hebrew, really? Hebrew perfectly. She speaks Arabic perfectly. She's an oh. actress here. But her family's in Haifa. So when October 7th happened, we were worried. And I get this both ways all the time. I have to worry for her family because Hezbollah is firing missiles from the north at Haifa, which had targeted Haifa before. And she has to go to bomb shelters when she was there with her family years ago and same in recent years. So I have to worry about her and worry about my family in the West Bank. And oh. it's a crossfire between everything because wow. what lost the media, Hamas killed many Arabs, many Muslims in their attack. You know, they were just slaughtering people at the kibbutzes and there were Palestinian, you know, Arab Israelis, Palestinians who were citizens of Israel who were like medical workers and stuff who were there who were just killed. Hamas, the number one victim of these groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda and Hamas are fellow Muslims. They don't care about Muslims. They care about power. I've written about this so many times in the past. They don't care about my faith. They don't care about Islam. They care about power. They'll kill anyone for power. So their focus is on Jews, yes, and Israel specifically, but they'll kill anyone for power. They don't, they've killed fellow Palestinians all the time for power. They don't care about us. Sounds like Trump to me too, sorry. Um, version, but- the Republican Party too. Yeah, the Republican Party is interested in power. Um, but mm -hmm. sorry, Victor, I was interrupting you. Well, no, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about policy um, while we're at it. You know, we mentioned a little bit about President Biden um, and the things that he has to do before Election Day next year. Uh, what are your thoughts and, and and how do you simultaneously sort of what we've been talking about before advocate for the right of Israel to defend itself against this brutal terrorist organization while also protecting innocent civilians in Gaza, not violating the rules of war? What should that policy look like right now? What it should look like is at the beginning, President Biden did not talk about, he went to Israel and he hugged Netanyahu, right? And I understood it. It was a terrible terrorist attack. I understand politics. And just like we were attacked on 9-11, Israel had a right, the, the nation had a right to defend itself. But then as we saw the images of the loss of civilian life, you know, Biden was saying things like, literally said, not, I don't believe Hamas. He said, I don't believe the Palestinians in what they're saying about the loss of life. He said Palestinians. And that was like a punch in the stomach for all of us. Because I went back and I, I'm like, I can't believe he said that. And later he apologized privately to a Muslim American group. And I wish he had publicly said that. I, I think that his tone, the language got better. Vice President Harris's language got so much better. I know she reached out, I can only say off the record, I can't say who, to people in my community talking directly, who are very connected. I mean, we have Arab Americans, Muslim Americans working in the Biden administration. There's never been more Arab or Muslim Americans working in any administration. He's been so embracing uh, of us as a community. So that's been remarkable before this. But then, you know, the, the great words are undermined by a lack of commitment to putting any restrictions on giving military aid in the future to Israel to ensure it can't, it, it cannot be used. Like you give it piecemeal, and if we see them violating the, the rules of combat and killing too many civilians, we go, we're stopped. We'll give you Iron Dome so you can defend yourself, but we're not giving you any more offensive missiles. And this is something like Congressman Mark Pocan on my show has talked about. We need this. You see Senator Van Hollen say it, Senator Kane say it. You know, you've had a few. I wish President Biden would embrace that, and that would be important. Going around Congress over the holiday break, again, I mean, you have Democratic senators coming out criticizing them. You don't usually see three Democratic senators saying that now. And it's... And I'm sure others are struggling with it. Um, so I, I think he's got a, President Biden's got a course correct in terms of policy. The tone was there. The words were getting so much better than it's undermined by the actions. And we need policy. And also, you know, President Biden talks about 
a Palestinian state. And that's great. Without mentioning that Netanyahu, since 2015, has said point blank, there'll be no Palestinian state on my watch. He said that then running for re-election, the one year he was out of office, he didn't change. He's come back. Now he's bragged. You see, even bragged recently, there was a Palestinian state. See how much worse it would be. President Biden's got to address the reality that there's no partner for a Palestinian state on the Israeli side right now. And he should say that. And he goes, if there's a change of administration, because it seems like, well, we snap our fingers and there's going to be a Palestinian state. No, Netanyahu's administration is not going to do it. This is, there are people like uh, Itmar Ben-Gavir and Smoltrik in this administration who Israeli papers like Harvard's call them Jewish supremacists. Same way we call people white supremacists. They really are, are bad people. I mean, they are really, they're bigots and racists. That does not represent uh, all Israelis by any stretch, but this is the far right. And he brought them into his administration. And he shouldn't have. That's how desperate he was for power. He brought in far-right bigots to his administration. I, I feel like I need to just emphasize what you said, though, uh, before, which is that Trump is even worse on this. Uh, oh, my God, yes. He, he adores Netanyahu mm -hmm. and would do even worse things. And Netanyahu is starting to face accountability in Israel. The Supreme Court has said, no, your attempt to do what you wanted to do to take away our power is unconstitutional. And so I, I really feel like there is hope for Israel. I mean, I, I was a young child when Israel was formed, really young child as in almost non-existent, um, when Israel became Israel. And going to Sunday school, I used to put dimes in a little card that had a tree on it to plant a tree in Israel. And Israel today under Netanyahu is not the country that I thought was being built, um, but it is also subject to the attacks like it's having by a, a group that you can only call terrorists because they have not done a good job in running Gaza for the citizens of Gaza and are sworn to destroy um, Israel as a country and the, all the Jews who live there who let's face it, thousands and thousands of years ago were there. It was their land. But anyway, that's, um, uh, I just wanted to make the fact that- I, I agree. Well, I do think though, the, the, the argument to say Muslim Arabs, and it's very interesting, when I interviewed Aiden from, from Gen Z for Change, I said, what are the issues that Biden has, should be talking about to reach young people? The first issue, he said, ceasefire in Gaza. He didn't know his Palestinian heritage at the time. That was the first issue. Now, this was a couple of weeks ago, and there was a lot more in the news then, but that's where his passion was. And, he, and then he had other issues as well. And I was like, wow. You know, yeah. so there's a lot of younger people. And, and telling younger people or people in my community, on the intersecting communities, that, well, Trump is going to be worse. What I think that people don't get, I was on a special for uh, on NBC streaming, and they had myself and like five other Palestinian Americans on it. And the word that came up over and over from them was very powerful. The word was betrayal. And here's what they meant. They voted for Biden. They worked for Biden. They knocked on doors for Biden. Some of them raised money for Biden. And for him to do this, it's not like Trump. They go, we would expect Trump to do this, but not the guy we supported. And betrayal is a very powerful emotion. Yeah. If you ever been betrayed, you know. And that is how raw it is. And that's what I tell people outside of people. Other Democrats ask me, well, how do you do it? I go, well, Understand where it's coming from. It's a sense of betrayal. It's not like they're going to vote for Trump. They're not going to vote. There's no way. We despise Trump. He's horrible. But saying, well, Trump will be worse is not going to erase the betrayal. 
it's Biden's going to have to earn their vote or Vice President Harris getting out there might be better, you know, person to do this, to go talk to them, get out in the community as a person of color, make the connections and talk about a future that's much better in terms of policy, rhetoric, but policy. And that's how you can maybe overcome it for a lot of people. I said, Paul, look, election now to November, so much is going to happen, about 300 and something days away. A lot will happen. Yeah. The election was in a couple of weeks. It would be a much more motivating issue. It might still be next in November. I just don't know. But he's got to address it head on. And I think Vice President Harris might be the better person to do that, to be honest. Yeah. Man, I'm so, I mean, obviously this is an emotional issue. And we have a ton of questions that we were going to ask you about legal issues based on uh, your legal background and you're following the news. We were going to talk about the not so emotional things about all of the trials that Trump is facing. Um, but unless we can manufacture some time, we're going to have to invite you back to sure. talk about all those issues um, because I think they are also um, really important. You know, we, we have upcoming as the year starts, the arguments on immunity, we have the E. Jean Carroll trial, we have the Georgia trial, we have the two federal trials, we have the New York fraud case wrapping up, we have the New York uh, criminal case uh, coming up. And I don't know how they're going to all fit in before the election and how much they will affect the election versus how much the um, conflict in Israel, Gaza is going to, I mean, it's like, man, I have so many questions, Dean. So promise me you will come back. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy much. to come back. And it's great to chat with both of you. And I, I always appreciate when you guys come on my, my Series XM show. I mean, I appreciate both your voices and your expertise in different areas. The intergenerational stuff that you guys are all about is great. Thank and you. We hope this audience that, that, that through this show and having you speak, we will reach an audience um, particularly the ones who don't follow the news, except through social media. We're hoping right. they will get this and listen to this. And, um, you know, we, we, you know, while we were criticizing Biden, his list of accomplishments is really legendary and unbelievable compared to almost any other president. He has accomplished so much despite the hurdles that he has had mm -hmm. to overcome. So, um, we're 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 hopeful that this issue will be maybe not solved. I think that's probably unrealistic, but will be on a better path. Um, you may have noticed that my pin today is a dove of peace. Oh, nice! That's very nice. And I just want to say, Jill, to the point you just made, because there are some fellow Democrats who get upset when we criticize our elected officials on issues. That's what you do. You yeah. try to change them. I'm not turning my back on them. I'm not saying I hate this person. I'm saying we elected someone, whatever the issue is. And I think Democrats sometimes get in the sense like, we shouldn't speak out. You're being an anti-Democrat. You're not being a good Democrat. Republican base demands everything. And right. their, right. their elected officials listen or get primary. And I'm not suggesting that for Biden. I'm just saying like, no. calling for our, pre like Biden's done a fabulous job in so many issues. I've talked about my show, I've written about it so many times. On this one, as a Democrat who helped elect them, and all Democrats who want to move them on any policy. It's the Middle East, it's Medicare for all you want to talk about more. Climate change, you want them to embrace the issues more or talk more about gun violence, whatever it might be. There's nothing wrong as Democrats, especially this far out. I wouldn't be criticizing President Biden two weeks before the election day, to be honest, because the stakes are too high. But this far out, 
it's still constructive. You can change policy. And I, and I hope my fellow Democrats, instead of checking out and getting upset, is that engage, get more involved. We can change from within. We have people who will listen to us in this administration. They will never listen to us in the Trump administration. They hate us. They target us. So we can change from within. And there's nothing wrong with being critical on one issue of our Democratic elected officials. And that's a sign of a healthy party, too, that we aren't in a cult like the Republican. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's also, right. I think it's also a very hopeful note to end this discussion on because it shows what can be in 2024. This is, you know, we're recording this on January 1st. And um, all of us are wishing everyone a happy new year. And I never make resolutions, but uh, Jen Rubin, who was a recent guest on this show, her last column of the year said, this is why I'm making a resolution. And it motivated me to say, I'm joining her in making a resolution to fight as hard as I can to keep our democracy, to keep Donald Trump out of office, to reelect Biden, and to try to reach people who have never met, for example, a Jew or a Muslim, who've never met a trans person, but mm -hmm. hold biases against them without even knowing one. Right. And I'm hopeful that people will start to get to know people and will act differently in 2024. Yeah. I, I, I agree very much. It's a great, great sentiment. Yes. Great way to end. Thank you so much, Gene, for coming on and joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Thanks, Jill. Nice seeing you. Happy New Year to you and everybody. Happy New Year. Year. Yeah. Happy Have a New great Year. afternoon. Thanks so you much. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did um, and that you are starting this year off on a note of love and peace over hate and division. Uh, we really need that this year and every day going forward. So um, thank you for watching or listening and for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe. If you watch us right here on YouTube at youtube.com slash Politicon and like and comment uh, so you, you know, so we know what you think of the episode. You can also follow us wherever you follow your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really wherever you listen, we are there. Uh, so be sure to find us there and leave us a rating as it helps others find the podcast as well. We thank you and we wish you all a happy new year. Thank you so much. And don't forget, we're also on YouTube. And so you can watch us and sign up there. And we, we both wish you a happy new year. And I hope that you will be joining my resolution to do everything you can to save our democracy. And, uh, you know, even if it's just knocking on doors for a candidate, local or President Biden, uh, we think that's gonna make a big difference in turning out the vote and to remembering no one is perfect candidate, but there's a choice between two. And yeah. we're assuming that Trump is going to get the nomination. But that's who would be the opposition. And so please, no matter what, think about what that would mean for democracy.